This is Justin Roth from War Curse, and you are listening to Misery Point Radio. You loyal bastards to the triumphant return of misery point radio yes it is true i am in fact not dead yet well not physically anyways and as always i appreciate you sacrificing what's left of your dignity and self-esteem to join me once again here in the wasteland i know it's been a very long time but here we are together as one loosening our bowels in unison as we digest the filth being force-fed to us by the world nay the universe and loving every agonizing second of it. God damn, I miss you fuckers. Anyway, today's victim, I mean special guest, is joining me for a second time here in the wasteland. We had met a few years back in Seattle at an exhorter show where he facilitated my conversation with Mr. Vinny LaBella and then joined me on the show himself a few months later to talk about his own epic band, Cincinnati's Crash Ambassador's War Curse. I'm, of course, talking about the always politically correct and soft-spoken teddy bear that is Mr. Justin Roth. Justin, of course, had no shortage of awesome things to share with us. We talked about his recent experience on tour in Mexico with hometown thrash lords Strike Master, how that tour came to be, what the fans and crowds were like, how fucking awesome the food is, the part-time job he got there making coffee like a true Mexican barista, and how this experience rates compared to other tours he's done. And, of course, we also talked about the upcoming new War Curse album. Well, as much as we could, anyway. But he did share some details about working with Metal Blade Records and Blacklight Media, as well as the musical concepts, inspirations, the overall process, and how this album will differ from the previous two albums. Oh, yeah. And there may have been a little industry gossip and quite possibly some shit-talking. You'll have to tune in to find out. So finish up with that enema, grab yourself a fresca, and crawl out of that safe space. It's about to get real. Check it out. Hey, Justin, welcome back to the show. It's been a very long time since we've had the opportunity to chat like this. Very stoked to have you back. Yeah, man, I'm excited. It's been a while. Yeah, I mean, shit, the last time you were on, it was just before, you know, the the shit hit the fan, if you will. And, uh, you know, it was already we were having a blast talking about all the crazy shit that's going on in the world. And then, of course... The big C happened and a bunch of stuff got fucked up in the in the world and in the industry, of course. And I wanted to also thank you because I took some time off and then I saw this cool post that you did, which was a very complimentary towards myself and the show. And, you know, I was in kind of a, a rut and feeling a little bit shitty. And, and that just really kind of made a huge impression on me that day and, and it kind of pulled me out a little bit. So I don't know if you realize that, but that power of positivity went a, went a, went a long way with me ironic because the content of your <laughs> post was, hey, I was listening to this show and I realized how shitty things have been for me. So so what what's going on? How are you feeling these days? Well, you know, it's funny, man, because, yeah, I mean, I feel like watching your show, I, I think it got rec- recommended to me on YouTube. I, I didn't look for it or anything, or maybe it was like a, a memory or something. And I was like, oh, man, I remember doing that show. It was super fun. And, and I listened to it and it was like, damn, like the world was so, I think, I made that post in like, I don't know, what, six months ago or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, but but that interview was from 2019 and we were talking about like all the cool shit going on. At that point in time, we had just put out Eradication, which was doing well. 
and we had all of these tours and all these big plans and little did we know, right? So yeah, <laughs> it was like, man, life was a lot cooler in 2019. So yeah. yeah. But but watching but watching your show and and seeing that like, you know, things weren't always so shitty and like there was a different man, I went through some dark times, man, like since the last time we talked, you know, and, and it sounds like you did too. I think everybody did, honestly. And it was uh, I guess contrasting where I was in, in my in my feelings and my language and in my outward messaging and you know all my social media and all my stuff like it had just become like a, a snowballing of of negativity and just bullshit and just you know seeing what I was like in 2019 and seeing how much happier I was and how much more positive and like optimistic I was it really kind of put things in perspective and kind of kicked me in the ass a little bit to like get working on the new album get things going again to like quit dwelling on you know all the things we lost and i guess try to rebuild so it it did a lot for me too man just to watch that show it was a really good show oh thank you brother it's uh yeah and i i'm excited because things are picking back up you know case in point you just got back from a super badass tour around the old mexico and uh, you know strike master who you got a chance to play with i was introduced to them about three years ago from my friend keith morash who is doing some public relations work for them and I kind of became a fan of them because they, they definitely were kicking around that old school thrash vibe, very raw, full of energy, in a way kind of reminded me of old Exodus, just with how in your face it was. And uh, so you had a chance to go hook up with these guys. How, how, did, how did that even come to be? Yeah, so, I mean, for one, Keith's an awesome dude and, and the Strike Master guys couldn't be any cooler. It was not the first time we'd played with them. We, we had co-headlined a... NYDM show with them in Queens, New York, like way back when, 2015, 2016, something like that. So we we knew them and uh, we had had a couple of tours with this, the same promoter, Seferino of EA Booking put this tour together. And those tours, you know, kind of due to COVID, due to some logistics and some other stuff had, had been postponed, canceled, however you want to look at it. And, you know, versus sitting around waiting for like, another opportunity with a big band. The first tour we were going to go out with a band called Rada Blanca. And if you don't know who they are, they're kind of like the scorpions of the Spanish-speaking world or something. They're enormous band. Like, we were supposed to play the fucking Pepsi Center in Mexico City. Like, it didn't even... <laughs> it made zero sense. Like, who, who got drunk and decided that, like, we should be playing, like, these massive, massive arena shows and stuff? So either way, versus sitting around waiting for another one of those to roll around, it was like, let's, let's roll our sleeves up. Let's, like, do it old school. Strike Master, friends of ours, let's go play some thrash metal shows. We don't give a shit, you know, our, our band philosophy has always been 10 or 10,000. Like, we don't care who's in the crowd. Like, we're just going to go in there and do the thing. So the tour was awesome. And, you know, those guys, you're right, like old school thrash metal, they kind of just beat you over the head with it. You know, I mean, Exodus would be a good comparison, you know, from the time they start until the time they stop, man, they're just 100 miles an hour. Like, you're not going to, you're not getting any ballads out of Strike Master. Yeah. <laughs> they, the, the crazy thing though was like the way that that tour was billed I mean like our name when the promoter put it out like he, he had built us above them in Mexico which felt to me like incredibly weird and wrong you know it's like this they're a much bigger band than us much more established we're going to their country and sure as shit like we get to the first show and the promoter's like you guys are last and it was it was, was nerve wracking but like Playing after those guys elevated us to a level that like we haven't been on 
maybe ever. Like it just, the iron sharpens iron. Like those guys went up there and just obliterated the place. So we had to follow them and we followed them every night. We played last every night and, and it forced us to just absolutely get up there and, and kick some ass. So it was, it was, it was a great experience and, you know, huge thank you to those guys for putting us over like that. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know how you say it in Spanish, but they definitely give off a kill all the posers vibe, don't they? It's in your face for sure. Well, like, have you seen the, the current lineup of Strike Master? Like these dudes, yeah, they're, they're no joke, man. Like in a fight, the three of them would probably take out like any five piece band you could find. Like they're, there's there's some no nonsense dudes, man. Walter in that band, that dude is a, is a fucking monster. So, yeah, if anything, it was cool because we felt very safe walking around with them. Like anywhere we went, so nobody's gonna mess with Walter. It was really cool. Had you been to Mexico before, just on any kind of a personal trips or anything like that? Yeah, so I had been to Mexico a handful of times in my life. I, you know, I had been to, you know, like the touristy Cancun kind of thing. You know, just just vacationing. I had been to Mexico City with Exodus. Where else did we go with Exodus? We did the Cosmo. We did the boat thing. So yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd been there in a professional capacity. I've also been there just kind of messing around. What I had not done, though, was go deep into like proper Mexico. Right. You know, there's a really, really big difference in, in going to, you know, Cancun and like sipping, you know, fruity drinks at a resort and like going to Zacatecas or, <laughs> you know, places that nobody I know has ever been. So it was, that was actually probably the coolest part was just to almost kind of dispel some of the, uh, the the negative that you hear every day in the, in the news about what's going on down there. Sure. And, and to, you know, to get a, get an actual first world look at, at this, like firsthand look. And uh, yeah, Mexico was nothing like what, what a lot of people fear that it's going to be like. You know, you think you're going to go down there and immediately get kidnapped and, you know, all this other crazy stuff you hear about on the news. But man, everywhere we went, the people couldn't have been any cooler. A beautiful country. We didn't see any kind of nonsense happening anywhere we went. And I mean, we went everywhere. So, you know, that that to me was was probably the coolest part was just actually experiencing Mexico for myself and, and not through the lens of like a, you know, Fox News program or something. Sure. Well, that's, that's exactly why I bring it up. I mean, my wife and I went to Puerto Vallarta some years back and fell in love with it. And we st- in a touristy area, but definitely when we went out, we got out off the beaten path and we experienced, you know, like the siesta time for those motherfuckers just close everything in the middle of the day. <laughs> and if you're prepared for that, you, you got, you got nowhere to go. You got nothing there. It's, it's crazy. But we did find this one joint and they let us in there and they're like, haha, stupid tourists, but please come in. And they, they fed us and it was great. And my wife did have an incident with some peeping toms in the bathroom. Besides that, <laughs> it was it was pretty epic, and and yeah, we did find ourselves getting lost in an area that we shouldn't have been in, and I believe the taxi driver that ended up picking us up was like, "Well, you got two options. Uh, you know, I, I can take you back to your place, or you, you can risk walking the rest of the way." And I was like, "Yeah, I think I'll take that ride now." But it yeah. was it was beautiful, man. Nothing better than being ceviche right out of the water on the beach, and you know, just kind of seeing everybody in their elements in the crazy 120 degree weather followed by a lightning storm, which was just nuts. So what, what was some of the cool shit you got to do? We'll talk about the music in a minute, but just, you know, what, what did you get to do while you were in Mexico? Something that, that was exciting or fun or, or something you just don't get to do here in the old States. I mean, the food was incredible. Oh. So, so yeah, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm missing that something fierce. I made the mistake of going out for Mexican food when I got back. <laughs> 
<laughs> what a colossal what were you thinking <laughs> well i gave it a week I, I let there i let a buffer build up but you know I, I mean i eat so much mexican food all the time anyway like you know any other time so yeah i just i had that that craving and went out and god that was terrible but uh, yeah i mean the, the nice thing was we had a couple of days off but the way that the tour was scheduled like we got to guadalajara which was a really cool city and a really great show but we got to guadalajara on a day off we had a show the following day and then the next day we were off. So those were our two off days. So we stayed in Guadalajara for three straight days, like same hotel for like three nights and, and really got to know that city. And like, I mean, you know me and I know how you are. So, you know, coffee snob just went walking around <laughs> finding. I, I, I drank enough coffee to probably kill a mere mortal, but uh, coffee yeah, is so fucking good over there. Dude, it's so good, man. They're on a whole nother level. And this is where I love the people so much. Like, we had gone to this place called Cafe Madrid a couple of times in a row. And me and me and Walter of a Strike Master bassist, he dude, this guy, he like interrogates the barista when he walks in. It's hilarious. Like this dude, he he will ask you like 50 questions. And if he doesn't like your answers, he says no and he just walks right back out. So like this dude, he can sniff out a good coffee spot. But we we went to this Cafe Madrid place and after ordering the same drink, because I'm just sort of like, it's all in Spanish. So I'm just kind of pointing and, and, and guessing and hoping for the best. Right. I had the same drink a few times. It was incredible. And I asked the owner via translator, of course, like how, how they make it. And versus trying to explain it to me, she takes me behind the counter and has me make a few of them. So like I'm getting like barista lessons in Mexico from the owner of this cafe and like learning some, some tricks. And it was just incredible, man. But, you know, a lot of walking around markets, a lot of just before the shows we would go out and just sort of like go to wherever like the public square was where people would hang out and uh, we would promote the show on foot like go meet people you know i went through like five big bags of guitar picks just like handshakes and hey come out to the show tonight and like it's funny because i've gringos wandering around mexico like everybody assumes you're famous anyway <laughs> which is like super hilarious like i took so many pictures with strangers that weren't into music at all they just see you and stop you for a photo yeah so yeah i was like a good opportunity to like, you know, draw a little attention to the show and just kind of take in the culture and like mingle with the locals. So that was my favorite part. Honestly, it was just going out for coffee and just meeting people. Yeah. And uh, you know, every, everywhere you turn, there's, there's food, the street food scene everywhere is amazing there. And oh, we talked about this before and I know that we have several friends that this is a thing, but let's just say that you're out on tour. Probably the one thing that people do is just eat the most shittiest garbagey food and then you feel like crap the entire time you're out there. And then you get back and you got to purge all that stuff. You don't feel like that when it's all fresh prepared. It's not like fast food. It's not like, you know, going to a, a burger joint and, you know, eating 5,000 calories of preservatives. You know, it's, it's everything is so fresh there, which is, which is just absolutely outstanding to me. Yeah, I mean, that helps a lot. I don't eat meat to begin with, but I think avoiding some of the mystery meat helps you stay healthy <laughs> on the road. So, right. There were a couple of places that, that that we ate that the guys ate some stuff to me that looked a little suspect. I mean, nobody got sick or anything, but yeah, I mean, I try to, it, it's like, it's risk management for sure. So I don't yeah. know. I try to avoid anything that looks questionable. Well, and but we every, all know yeah. what the rule number one on the tour bus is. So, uh, you know, make sure you watch what you eat there. Dude, that was the best part, man. Like this tour was so incredible. We we did it. It was a van tour. We had no bus, no no oh. trailer. Straight up van tour with a with a backline company. And dude, we had hotels every day. Like we never had a drive longer than maybe, well, one, one time we got screwed by traffic, but the normal drives were like, you know, two to three, maybe four hours at the most. So, I mean, it was one of the easiest tours I've ever done. Certainly one of the most enjoyable. 
But you don't realize how much easier it is to stay healthy and to perform your best when you have simple things like a shower more than once a week and a bed to sleep in. <laughs> it's incredible. So yeah, I think no. that, that, that really helped us stay in, in top form every night too. So Well, that's awesome then. So getting to the, I guess, the meat and potatoes of it then. So you guys played like eight or nine shows, something like that over there. What's the... What's the crowd reaction like when you guys are playing? Obviously, hometown heroes, Strike Master, probably have a, a pretty good reputation all over that place. But how, how was the response to workers? So, yeah, I mean, that was it, was it was almost like, I can tell you the exact moment every night in the set. It was always during Severed Crosses, which was, was the second song in the set. We, we would hit that middle section and like me and Blaine do a goofy little guitar trick where like I throw the guitar over to Blaine and like he, he frets it while I pick it and like I give the crowd the finger. I was actually I was actually nicer in Mexico. I was like waving and giving them the horns and stuff because I felt I you don't know who you're flipping off of the crowd down there. Yeah, like every night like that would happen and that was the moment that we would win them over and then the rest of the set would just be a banger. But it was like, yeah, it would it would take us like a song and a half for them to like warm up to us and like get on board with what we were doing. But in the middle of that second song every night, we would catch fire and then the rest of the set would go amazing. Following Strike Master, so I mean, they're, like I say, they're just relentless. You know, their whole set's fast. They don't have a single, they don't even have a mid-tempo song. Like, it's just fast, you know? So we would get up there and we would open with a couple, like the the, the first block of the set, really, the first four were just absolute bangers and and we would play our, our thrashier stuff. But like, you know, conventionally we kind of cater our set so that there's sort of some peaks and valleys you know we try to play like a we were playing i don't know 70 minutes or so a night and uh, and we would try to slow it down in the middle and like mexico wasn't having any of that so we about i don't know three shows in we were playing a couple of new songs and we'll talk about that in a minute yeah we, we played the two that i let you hear and we, we had to start reading the room okay so like we were doing the anthrax cover we were playing only which is fantastic, by the way. Yeah, the, a whole other level on that one, but continue. So, so we, we, if, there, if the crowd was a little older, so depending on the city, depending on the size of the crowd, the only cover would either go over amazingly or it would completely bomb because like a, <laughs> a, like a bunch of like 16 to 20-year-old Strike Master fans have never fucking listened to John Bush era Anthrax right. and they had no idea what was going on. So like we just... We really started gauging the room and like, I, I hate to say like we, we were well, like we were literally just surveying like, all right, how young is the crowd? How old is the crowd? And if the crowd was young, what we were doing, we were cutting the new songs out and we were adding in a couple of thrashers that we didn't rehearse and didn't really have planned in the set. But like we just worked them out in soundcheck. So we put a couple more rippers in there. We swapped out the Anthrax cover. And just without rehearsing it or anything, we figured we could smack it together. We we put a Seek and Destroy into the set oh, just, to, just to get people singing and having fun. So, yeah, I mean, just reading the room and being smart about it. I think the the crowds ate it up. I mean, I, I really do. I think every night we got a, a far better response than we could have ever hoped for, for, you know, our first time in a country. And everybody wanting autographs afterwards and signing stuff. And we sold a lot of merch. And, you know, it was honestly, man, it was great. Mexico has some of the best fans. Yeah, and I, I have heard that, which is why I wanted to ask you how the response was, because from what I understand is that the energy level from the crowd is pretty unrivaled and, and that those guys go crazy. And I, I was curious if, if any of them, did you run into people that were familiar with you like before you played? Did you, did you have any, any people that, that knew who you were? Yeah, there was some. There were definitely some who either knew who we were because they 
organically knew who we were or I mean, we did a lot of promoting and like Metal Blade ran some ads for us and like a lot of people found us like before we got there. All right so I think, I think a lot of the Mexican fans just did their homework. So like everybody knew Serpent because that was the video we put out. So sure. like, you know, in, in their best English, they would tell us like, play the Serpent, you know, like they all wanted to hear. <laughs> and, it, and we played it and, we, and they'd go nuts for it. But yeah, I mean, as far as energy goes, man, like there was one night, I don't know if you saw the video, we were playing, fuck. Torion. We were in Torion. And uh, the stage, it was a very weird layout. But like we played, it was like we were on the second floor behind a guardrail. And then below us on the first floor was like the open floor was the pit. So like literally the pit was in a pit. And I mean, these dudes were circle pitting and somebody knocked a bunch of broken, like a bunch of bottles over. There was broken glass on the floor and beer. And they were slipping and landing in the glass. They didn't give a shit. Like they were just tearing the place up. So yeah, it was like those crowds are nuts, man. They're awesome. So that's great. It's, uh, those guys are. I know that they they love the music, but I always hear about all these festivals, and all these festivals go to like Mexico or they go to South America. You know, there's like a ton of European stuff too. But I always hear about the crowds in those areas. I'm super jealous that I've never had a chance to to play out that way. So that just must have been super badass. Yeah, it's funny because you hear about all these wonderful things happening in Europe and you hear about all these wonderful things happening in uh, Latin America. What, what are we leaving out here? Oh, wait a second. <laughs> be a little country called the yeah. U.S. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, interesting. And but, did uh, you feel, I mean, did it feel different than, than playing here? I mean, I know you've, you've played shitloads yeah. of stuff here in the States. Yeah. And I mean, not, not to, you know, not to knock the, the U.S. fan base. Sure. By any, you know, we have amazing fans here and, you know, especially like, some of our regional and like kind of our old school fans, they go nuts for us too. But like, yeah, it's a, it's a whole nother kind of thing. I think it, it's the level of enthusiasm. And I think what, what a lot of it comes down to, I think is just like appreciation. Like if you live in, you know, New York city or, I mean, hell you're in Seattle, that's a big city. Even in Cincinnati, like, I mean, how many shows are going on tonight in your city? Oh, you know, man, more than you can count. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, it's like when you go to a place like, Zacatecas or Torreon or one of these like super off the beaten path yeah. cities like dude we might have been the only show they got that week or that month you know so like the, it's like well this is my this is my one show this month like I'm gonna get it all out so I think that's part of it like the lack of saturation which is like the opposite of what we have here you know comparing it to Europe I would say it, it, it definitely rivals it you know every band kind of obsesses over Europe and Europe sort of treated like the mecca of metal. But I think like Latin America absolutely gives it a run for its money. And with as screwed up as shit is in Europe right now and with the cost of touring in Europe right now, I think a lot of bands that are really start looking at Latin America as like a suitable replacement, one income wise and two, you know, it's like if you want to play good shows or like you said, big festivals, I mean, there's no shortage down there. So, yeah. Now, was this something that, that you guys did just for the sake of doing it? I mean, was this, a, was this a financially worthwhile tour? Did you guys take it in the ass or did you come out ahead and, and you know, make it worthwhile going there from a business standpoint as well? No, man, this was the, this is the most we ever been paid for any tour in our career. So, Oh, shit. Yeah, I won't disclose how much we made, but I can tell you that like normally on, a, on, a, on like a regular tour, we're stoked if we get home and like we broke even. Right. Or like have enough money to like, you know, buy, go out to dinner when we get back or something. But no, this was like on a whole nother level, man. This was like you come home and like you you weren't salty that you you missed work for a week. Like you might you made more money than you made at work, you know, in a normal week kind of thing. So awesome. So it was yeah. a, it was a good overall experience, and that that makes me 
excited for things because, you know, when you look at this, you know, we've talked about this a million times, but really the record industry as a whole is not where bands make the majority of whatever pittance they make. You know, it's really touring and merch sales and, and things like that. So, and I know that you, you have your own business and you've been in the merch game. So I assume that that was probably what helped to make that the most lucrative for you guys out on this tour. Well, I, I did not print our, print our merch for this tour. Like I normally do. We, we, yeah, we sourced it. We had it printed down there. Just shipping costs alone. Oh yeah. Brutal. Make, yeah. Make that stuff kind of tricky, especially right now shipping like I just did a bunch of Exodus merch and the cost of shipping that stuff, man. The the shipping is like almost as much as the merchandise right now. So, but yeah, I mean, it, being smart with your merchandise, we didn't we didn't over order, we didn't under order. You know, we kind of we were realistic going in, and we found a independent printer down there. We didn't use like a giant merch company or anything. We found somebody with a good reputation who who printed it for us at what I thought was a very fair price. And we just did like the one tour shirt. We didn't try to go down there with like 25 designs and come back with a whole bunch of stuff we had to pay to bring back. So yeah, we just did like the one shirt with the tour dates on it. We did like the special edition with like the Mexican colors on our, our classic undone skull design and people loved it. So it was cool. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I'm, I'm I mentioned the 25 designs. I was at a, I was at a show relatively recently and I was like, holy crap, how many freaking shirts do I have to look at? Just give me one with the fucking tour dates on the back of it and uh, yeah. not a picture of like your mom or whatever's on the cover. I don't know. Well, it's tough. I mean, it's like right now the merch game is so competitive. And like you say, I mean, that's normally in a, in a traditional tour. That is like how you make your money. You know, normally any other tour, it's like you either sell that merch or like you don't get to the next city, you know, at least for us anyway, we don't have a humongous guarantee like some bands. So when you when you when you live and die by that merch like you got to make sure you've got something for everybody you know you got to really lean into that so it was nice with this one like going in with like a nice guarantee and like with a promoter who you know treated us right and covered expenses and flights and all that sort of thing like we weren't we weren't going to starve to death if we didn't sell t-shirts every night so we were able to to actually be smart about it versus like going into it with like a almost like a sense of desperation that you go on a lot of times trying to try <laughs> And I hate to put it that way, but it is. It's like, man, you go into some of these shows as like, you know, when you're touring the U.S. and you get to, you know, fucking Butte, Montana or someplace and you're like, man, if we don't sell some merch tonight, you know, it's like the gas lights on when you pull up to the venue and it's like everybody's got their hand out wanting their per diem. Everybody's hungry. It's like, damn, we better sell some shirts today. But like, we didn't have that, you know, we didn't have that feeling. So it was cool. Yeah. And you weren't playing for drink tickets. So, I mean, yeah. you know, that's, that's always a bonus right there. Yeah. No, we weren't paid in exposure. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> or, or better yet, you didn't have to pay to play, which is yeah. sadly still a thing. I, I don't understand it. But yeah, you know, I mean, so many venues have closed down, too. So it's really just kind of limiting. I think, you know, a lot of bands are trying to get into these places and they're still getting hosed on that. I could probably go for hours and hours and hours about all the dirty shit in the industry. But yeah. Well, I've been doing a couple of podcasts lately and people seem to want to bring this stuff up all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> like the, the like the, the the merch cuts right now, and the, the one thing that nobody's talking about, I, I guess Taylor Swift sort of brought it to light, like the the monopoly that Ticketmaster and Live mm. Nation have, just as far as like the the front end of the business. But what nobody's talking about are all the independent venues that got bought by Live Nation during COVID and how they finance that stuff. So like 
that to me is the biggest kick in the ass is like a young band that enjoys playing, you know, independent venues and not like the corporate shitholes that want one of 20% merch cut, you know, like your options now are so limited yeah. because of, if your city had 10 independent venues pre COVID and five of them went under and live nation bought four of them, like now there's one left and like the odds that your band's going to get it versus, you know, another band that was, you know, bigger or, you know, booking their tour a day before you did. It's just, it's a lot harder right now. So what Live Nation was doing, and I, I'm just amazed nobody caught on to this, they were announcing these big mega tours. And, and I know you saw at least like 10 of them get announced where it's like some giant tour package. And this was in like 2020, 2021. Yeah. They knew damn well those tours weren't going to happen. But what they did was they took pre-sales on all that stuff. That's an influx when you're talking about, you know, 20 and 30,000 person venues. And you're talking about tickets that are a hundred, you know, two hundred, five hundred dollars for these tours. Do the math. You know, that's millions and millions and millions of dollars of working capital that they brought in that they were free to do whatever they wanted with for two or three years. So at a time where all these independent venues are struggling, these assholes are taking in millions of dollars to then buy said struggling venue and nobody was getting refunds on the tickets because they were afraid the cost was going to go up or they were going to miss their spot or whatever. So yeah, man, it was a really dirty thing. So yeah, a lot of independent venues are gone and it makes touring a hell of a lot harder. Yeah. And also with a lot of those, it's like the artists, they have no control over what those ticket prices are either. I mean, it reminds me of, fuck, 30 years ago or whatever it was when, when you know, Eddie Vedder went on a rail against Ticketmaster and, and, you know, they wanted to have $20 ticket prices and they were having to charge $100. And this is fucking three decades ago. Live Nation and Ticketmaster should have never been allowed to merge. That was a huge screw up on the part of our government, and it has created a dreadful monopoly in the music industry that I fear if it's not correct, it's eventually just going to kill live entertainment. Ghost tickets went on sale the other day in Cincinnati, and a friend of mine messaged me. She bought two general admission tickets, and with all the fees and all the bullshit, it's 500 bucks yeah. to see ghosts. Two tickets for ghosts, 500 bucks. Like, I don't know what year we're living in. Like, I, I must have woke up in a bad dream, but like the last time I saw ghosts, Tickets were like $45, yeah. you know? So this like $250 shit is, it's absolutely insane. And I don't know at what point people stop paying for it. It's either going to get to the point where like we have to collectively, everyone as a whole, bands included, have to say enough is enough. Or like maybe, I, I don't know, people are going to have to plan to go to one show a year. Like that's all their budget's going to allow. If, you know, if it's 500 bucks to get in and a t-shirt's 50 bucks and a beer's, you know, 12 bucks. Like people are going to get to go to one show a year. So like, you know, it's, it's going to kill the touring industry as well. It's, it, it, we're, we're dangerously close right now to like the point of no return. Like we've walked right up to the line and it's like somebody needs to do something quick or this is going to like fall apart fast. Yeah. My wife and I go out, but that's kind of what we do is, you know, once or twice a year, we, we go to, you know, a quote unquote big concert, I guess we'll call it, you know, with your stadium bands or whatever. And is you're not getting out of there with less than $500 expenditure. And if, if it's out of a city that, you know, I don't live there and you're going to travel, then you got hotels and you could be a thousand dollars to see a concert, you know? Yeah. And that's for the big, the big acts, if you will. But some of the, some of the independent acts too, I mean, you're seeing those tickets up there over a hundred dollars and, uh, you know, two people to go, it's still a few hundred bucks by the time you throw all your stuff in there too. $50 shirts. I mean, that's just a thing. It, it is what it is. I mean, we used to laugh at, you know, we went and saw Roger Waters and uh, the, the biggest anti-capitalist on the planet, right? Charging $75 <laughs> for a thin ass fucking t-shirt. You know, 
I'm all about merch and, and that's fine, but don't rally against the capitalism and charge me 75 bucks for a shitty t-shirt. Yeah, he, he's such an asshole. I mean, so many <laughs> of those guys are. Like him and, him, him and fucking Zach Delarosa and fucking, I mean, three quarters of these fucking guys, they can just hold hands and jump into a fucking volcano and nobody would miss them. They're just a bunch of assholes. I, I love the, I love the hypocrisy. Yeah. Like, you know, we're for our fans, this, that, and the other. Just like, you know, the, the thing, so back to what you were saying before, this is this is where the hypocrisy really comes into play. Some of these bands do have a say-so in their ticket prices. Some of them. Sure. Like, when you see this this fucking thing, this dynamic ticket pricing, have, have you seen this? I have, and this is where the Taylor Swift thing kind of comes into play, right? Yeah. Yeah, so like, with the dynamic pricing, the artist opts into that. That's not an automatic yes. feature. The artist has the the option to say yes or no to that. So, like, any artist who who opts into this thing and then acts like they had nothing to do with it. They're absolutely full of shit because that is not the default way that tickets are sold. Even as much as I hate Ticketmaster, like I'm going to let them off the hook a tiny bit here. Like the artists still signed off on gouging the shit out of their fans. Sure. So like, that's a good point to bring up. Yeah. It's now, now secondary market and scalpers and bots. And there's a hundred other things you can complain about that like make tickets outrageous to begin with. But as a whole, I feel like one Ticketmaster has done nothing to like shut down the bots that that'll buy up all the tickets. I can't remember who it was. It might have been, it might have been Neil Young. It was it was one of the older guys. Somebody. It was it was like a year ago, maybe. They they required you in order to use your ticket at the door. You had to show the credit card that they were paid for with. And I thought that was brilliant because like that's going to shut down a lot of the scalpers, a lot of these assholes that just like do whatever they got to do to get a pre-sale code, right. buy, buy eight tickets for the sole purpose of throwing them on StubHub and like quadruple in the price. So something's got to be done about scalpers. I mean, I think that there, even, even legally something needs to be done. I'm not a big fan of big government or like a lot of government intervention, but at a certain point in time, like we have to do something about these crazy fees that are for nothing. It's just free money for the corporations. We have to do something about scalpers. We have to do something to shut down the insanity that is going to kill the music business. Yeah. And uh, I mean, insanity abounds. That's, that's for sure. No shortage of it. And I agree. I mean, li live music is one of the last true bastions of, of just artistic expression. And if, if it was to go away, I, I that might be a eat a bullet time right there. That's just <laughs> can't even, can't even fathom that not being a thing. Dude, I'm right there with you, man. I'm right there with you. Yeah. And with that, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Justin and I are going to talk about what's going on with the new War Curse album and so much more. So don't go anywhere. In the meantime, here's a killer track from War Curse off their album Eradication. This one's called Sands of Fate.
Well, let's move on then to some other cool happenings. Let's talk about what the fuck is going on with Warcurse in the studio. New albums done, masters handed in. Shit's about to get real. So let's let's talk about let's talk about the new Warcurse album. Yeah, or you whatever you can about? talk about in regards to the new Warcurse album. Yeah, let's see what we can talk about. I I can't I can't say the name of it. I can I can tell you that we we recorded 10 songs on a cover. And one of those songs wasn't going to fit on the album. So you're getting, you're going to get nine songs and a cover song on the album. I think it's our best work. I love it. We recorded it. We started in June. So, I mean, we took our time with this thing <laughs> to put, <laughs> to put it nicely. We, we, we definitely, we, we checked all the boxes and a, a lot of editing, you know, ourselves, a lot of taking an honest look at songs once they were, you know, quote done or like demoed or recorded the first two or three times around and, and trimming the fat and making sure that, you know, it wasn't just a bunch of like masturbation and try to keep the songs. Yeah. Cut, cut out a lot of the wanking and all that sort of stuff. So I don't know. That was a terrible answer, man. I don't know. I felt kind of vague. I don't know how to answer that because I can't, there's certain shit I can't say. <laughs> okay. So there's a lot of stuff obviously that you talk about, but you are with Blacklight, right? Which is a division of Metal Blade. Is that still the case? Yeah. So we're a, it, it's a joint contract. Blacklight Media is the project of Chris Santos, like celebrity chef Chris Santos, whom I know well because I myself am a celebrity chef. Well, there you uh, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude, Chris is a super rad dude. So yeah, like we're, but our contract is through Metal Blade. It's, it's a cool partnership that they have. I guess Chris is really into sort of like the DIY, like underground scene. And he wants to see bands like mine get elevated. So yeah, he, he puts a little, little skin in the game and Metal Blade puts the team behind it. And so, I mean, everybody we deal with is just Metal Blade. You know, there's really no like Blacklight Media staff is like Chris and sometimes Matt, but yeah, it's, it's pretty much just deal with metal blade. Pretty cool. Yeah. Which is, I mean, to this day still, there's only a, a handful of, of metal labels that really get the recognition and metal blade and Brian Slagle and just that whole, that whole dynamic there has, has been largely responsible for, I think, keeping a lot of metal at the forefront and keeping the knowledge out there. Now, when we first talked, I think that that relationship had just gotten started. Either you had gotten signed or you were in the process of getting signed i don't remember it's been a while now but assume that stuff kind of all got put on hold in the middle of all the bullshit that went down yeah it's hard to say like we had talked to them about eradication and for whatever reason a deal never transpired so we were on their radar like with the last album and it's worth noting like kind of on what you just said though like they do keep their ear to the ground i mean even thinking back to like the 2000s when when metal was kind of like had petered out for a while and they were the first ones to really kind of acknowledge like the the kill switch engages of the world and like some of the the newer like more modern bands so like they've always kind of had their had it to the pulse or whatever so you know metal blade as a whole one of the things that i that i appreciate about them too is they're one of the last true independents like it's worth noting that like metal blade is still metal blade you know all these other guys have been bought by you know, Sony or Universal or somebody owns like pretty much all of the metal metal labels now are owned by somebody else where Metal Blade is still Brian's company. You know, it's still Metal Blade is still the same record label that it's been for, you know, 40 years. Yeah. 
And so how, as far as working with you then as, as an independent label, I mean, do you find that they're supportive of your material? Is there a lot of back and forth, you know, a lot of direction like, ah, you know, we don't like this or don't like that, cut that shit out. Justin, shut the fuck up and stop posting on Facebook, you know, stuff like that. I got one talking to about, (laughs) about a, about a Twitter post from, I don't know, five years ago that somebody unearthed and tattled on me for, I can't go into detail there. But, you know, no, they've been super cool, man. They've been super supportive. There has been n- none of this, you know, change. No one's given us any input on the sound. No one gave us any input on the direction, you know, just just to kind of stay on the up and up. Like I did send Ryan Williams is our is our A&R. He's our rep there, formerly Black Dahlia Murder bassist Ryan. Mm-hmm. So super, super cool dude, though. But like I would send him stuff along the way and, and kind of show it to him. And he was like, man, this sounds awesome. Keep doing what you're doing. So like when we submitted the album, it got approved almost immediately. No revisions, no edits, no nothing, you know. I think we did all that ourselves, like, before we sent it in. So, yeah, man, they were super cool. There was no pushback. They they weren't leaning on us to do a certain thing or be a certain way. Like, they were totally, they they, they signed a band and they let the band do their thing, which is cool. So Very when admirable. It, when it came back time to, you know, after the the break was over, if you will, to, to get back in and start start moving things forward again, was that driven by, by you in the band or was that driven by the label guys? Like, hey, you know, we going to get this shit done or what? I was a little of both. I think like, so it was kind of odd because, you know, traditionally, I think when you, when you do a new record deal, most of the time you're doing that with an album in hand. You know, I don't think a lot of bands like go fishing for, for a record deal and then make the, the album. Like right. it, we kind of did it backwards. But again, like we were talking prior to covid and we had talked to him on the last album so like we signed with him in i don't know it was 2020 or 2021 i'd have to go look but yeah then we made him wait like that entire time for an album they knew that we were writing and and they knew that we were working on things but there was a period of time there were like we just couldn't get into a studio you know everything was was closed and there was you know then just like touring same sort of thing happened when like you know the world opened back up where every studio is now booked out for six months to a year because everybody's going to run out and make an album at the same time. Like we had all been home bored writing new albums. So it, w- it was almost intentional that I don't want to say we drug our feet, but like we waited it out just a little bit to like let the traffic jam sort of like start to, to sort itself out. You know, if you look at all the albums that have come out in the last year, it's right. just like my, my poor, my bank accounts taking a beating just buying all these albums that, that come out every <laughs> week. So yeah. It was it was a little intentional, but yeah, I mean, at a certain point in time, I was like, hey, guys, like, what the hell are you doing? So, you know, we started recording this album all the way back in June. And, you know, it, it was it was definitely it was partially us being very critical and, and making sure that we were turning in the, the absolute best album that we could. It was partially scheduling. It was it was a lot of things. But like we literally just handed in the final masters, like the actual files that will go to production yesterday. So I don't know how, how soon this will air, but, you know, for listeners, we started June 1st and it's February 21st right now. So, yeah, it definitely took a little while to make this album and uh, it won't take as long to make the next one. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know that that's that's a I, I feel like that's a, a fairly decent turnaround time. I mean, I, I've there's albums that take, you know, years in the making and, and literally from like, hey, we went in the studio in the songwriting process and a year and a half later we finally hand in the finals. So I don't know, six, what, six months, seven months for you guys to, to do a turnaround? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there was mixing in there. I mean, I think sure. we were probably done tracking by like the end of December, like first week of January, maybe. 
And then, you know, then there's the back and forth with the mix and getting it mastered and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, it took us like realistically about six months to record. That wasn't six months straight. Like, right. don't get me wrong. You know, it's not like we were there for literally six months staring at an engineer. He would have killed us, but uh, nor would we be able to afford something yeah. like that. But yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of the bands you're talking about, like Chinese Democracy or whatever that. Oh, my that, God. Uh, <laughs> you know, like like 150 years in the making. But like, sure. I think a lot of those bands are writing that stuff in the studio. Like they're going in with like, maybe they got a couple ideas, but like they're kind of going in there and like building it on the spot. Like we don't have the luxury, the time, the budget, you know, we're not going to, we're never going to be able to do something like that. So what we do is the next best thing. We all have recording gear. I think every, every musician does now, but Blaine, our vocalist is a really good engineer. He's actually pretty good at editing, mixing, all that sort of stuff. So we go to Blaine's house and like, we sort of write in our own studio but, uh, you know, we had these songs like mostly fleshed out before we got there. And then it was just a process of trimming the fat, getting rid of some of the, the wanky nonsense that wasn't adding anything to the songs and, you know, taking a look at how we could make things better, shorter, you know, formatting things, you know, potentially for like satellite radio play or whatever, you know, making sure we didn't have a, a two and a half minute intro on every song, which, you know, is kind of synonymous with thrash metal. But, you know, just kind of being a little more conscious, of, like where this album's going hoping that it will be a little more visible than the last one. So it was, it was a process. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I felt like eradication was really just, just solid. I mean, all around solid. And I, I wondered, you know, where you were going to go with that next. Last time we talked, not on the show, but just kind of off air, it was just like I had said something about, so you guys are going to be probably really fucking pissed off and angry by the time you go back into the studio. And how is that going to affect the sound of this new album? So did that come into play at all? Yes and no. Like I, I had to separate myself from a lot of the shit that, that I had gone through over the last couple of years, because to be honest, like I, I didn't, I kind of skipped angry and just went right to depressed. Like oh. I, I just figured like, well, this is it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, for the first six months, it's like, okay, this is going to end any minute now, right? You know, and then you're in year number two, and then you're in year number, and it's like, when the, when the fuck is that, you know, you start thinking, am I ever going to play music again? Like, is this it? Like, are we just, am I going to spend the rest of my life in my house? You know, so I told myself I wasn't going to write an entire album about it, and I didn't, you know, like, I didn't want, I don't want to look back on this album in, in 10 years or 20 years or 40 years and, and like relive you know, one of the shittiest eras of, of human history. You know, I don't want to like have an entire album about COVID and lockdowns and all that sort of shit. There are a couple of songs that, you know, lyrically, they're, they're, you know, in kind of a cryptic way, you know, I did address some of the stuff that was on my mind, of course, but, you know, pissed off, I don't know, maybe not so pissed off, but I, I do think that I wrote the album that I wanted to write. And I think that's like the most important thing is that I wrote something that felt very true to me in the in the time that I wrote it. You know, so it's not, it, it's not eradication, you know, and I love eradication. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm glad that everybody enjoyed it as much as they did. But like, I don't want to write the same album every time I go into the studio. And I was in a different headspace and my influences were, were a lot different. You know, I made it a point to kind of not listen to thrash metal yeah. a, a whole lot, like during the writing process and, you know, kind of getting, getting back into some of the, the old hardcore stuff that I, that I, you know, cut my teeth playing and, you know, kind of spending a lot of time at the record store because there's nothing else to do and, you know, kind of getting into a lot of kind of obscure sort of, you know, weird psychedelic and garage bands and just sort of, I don't know. And I'm not saying that that, that 
crept a whole lot into the writing, but it just took me out of that like Metallica Megadeth headspace for five minutes, you know? And I just think like it was nice to to go into it with kind of a clean slate and an open mind and just let the song sort of like organically come together. I don't, I don't feel like I forced anything on this album. Yeah. And so you were you were awesome enough to give me a little sneak peek of, of a couple of these tracks. And the first one, I, I don't know if we can say names of songs or whatnot, but. Well, they, they, I leaked them on the set list. The, the We did play. I sent you those two because those are the two we played in Mexico. So, OK, great. So somewhere, somewhere on a cell phone deep in the heart of Mexico exists like a video of these songs, I'm sure. But like, <laughs> amazingly, they have not surfaced or leaked yet. I don't know. I don't know if we were even supposed to play them live, but man, fuck it. Like we, we had fun playing them, but well, I will, well, I will well, refer to them as song number one and song number two. Well, well <laughs> we can call them, we can call them miracle and we can call the other one kill dozer. Okay. Those, those were the, those were the set list names. Okay. So. so the artist currently known as miracle, I think that the first thing that, that really jumped out at me about that was the fact that it started off, as you said, not thrashed. First, three notes of that i was like not thrash and that wasn't a derogatory statement i was like "Ooh, this is something different and it kind of had like a like a hardcore vibe to it and then it's kind of like some slower mid-paced cording a little bit of dissonance on there and a really cool kind of reverby lead guitar fill over the top semi kind of harmony vibe and i was like "Ooh, this is kind of like haunty and fucking eerie and I don't know where this is going to go. And so like within the first 30 seconds of that song, I was like, Jesus Christ, this is clearly it's got your sonic signature to it. But it definitely it struck me as not what I was expecting. Right. That song is. If that's indicative of what you guys are doing on this album, I, I'm shitting myself with anticipation on this. I already was, but now even more so. Yeah, I mean, I love that song. And, and the funny thing about that song is like, that was the one that everyone, now I say everyone, not myself. I was the only one that believed in that song. The whole rest of the band fucking hated that song. They almost didn't want to record that song. And, and I was like, dudes, just stick at it. Like the, the working, working title, that song was called Beep, Beep, Boop. <laughs> and, and, and the reason for that was the, the, the main, the verse guitar riff that, the, da, 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 you know, you know, the riff I'm talking yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah, that riff caused such a fight when I brought that to the band space because no one could hear where the one started on that riff. And and so I they were like, it's out of time. And I'm like, it fits on a fucking grid. Like it's all a beep or a boop. So like it, it got called beep, beep, boop. But yeah, that 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 song was something so like out of left field for us to do. But like by the time you you put, you know, the familiar vocals on it, like you you, you got right. the same voice. You got, you know, kind of like my signature like right hand work. You know, once you start you start layering it up, you know, it's like you start with something sort of different and obscure, but like you put the workers flavor on top of it, you know, and, and you, and, and, and then you put the workers production on it, you know, all sort of stuff. Like it became a workers song and, it, and it, I hope it's the first single. I don't know yet what's going to be a single, what's not. That's a conversation we're having this week, but like, I'm like super hard pushing for that to be the first one. I just thought the song kicked serious ass. So like, I'm, I'm glad that you liked it. I, I liked it. And, and I, I think, what I liked about it was it it definitely builds, right? It definitely has a lot of dynamics. It's got some slow parts. It's got some fast parts. Kind of reminds me of maybe some of the early prongy kind of stuff that you just don't know what to expect out of how the song is building. And then, yeah, by the time you get, you know, 
into it a minute or two, then you're like, oh, okay, you know, it, it fucking, it's taken off. But yeah, it, it's just a, that a very, very well, well-written, catchy with a lot of groove, definitely almost like an exhorter groove in that sense. It's very pockety, which I absolutely love. And it was just, just really unexpected. And then, oh. you know, the, the other song, the uh, Kill Dozer, I think for Kill Dozer, I work at title Kill Dozer. <laughs> You know, I, I, that one also very solid. I felt like a little bit more traditional what people might expect from War Curse. Kind of had yeah. some more of that just really heavy fucking in-your-face thrash stuff. So two completely different takes on on where you guys are on this album. So that just, it just, again, it leads me to think like, where, where, where are you guys going to go with this? And it's, it's, it's just sounding so freaking killer. I think people are going to be, they're going to be surprised and, and impressed. I think so. I'm glad, man. I'm glad you liked them both. Killdozer was a really fun one. Like that, that was one, some of those riffs, like I keep a giant riff bank. Like if I died right now and, and just handed my phone over to whoever, like they've got enough material, <laughs> like you could piece together like five albums with like all the riffs that I've got, like either in my garage band or my Pro Tools or my phone, whatever. Like, I just write shit every day. And and the reason those sound, I guess, a little more like, you know, eradication e is sort of. Like, I, I wrote those, like, right after. Some of those were, like, you know, post-eradication riffs, like when I first started writing stuff for this album. So, no surprise there. Yeah, a little more on the traditional thrashy side. We threw a couple of uh, little twists and turns in there. We had fun with it, man. And that's all stuff that we hadn't done before, you know? Like, up till now, everything's been like one heavy rhythm guitar tone, one just smashing riff after another. So it's cool to like, I don't know, take a step back and like my musical interests lie all over the place, you know, and I and I listen to a lot of these bands that get to do a lot of cool shit. And I ask myself, like, why we don't get to do cool shit, you know, and I think that thrash metal as a whole, there's like a lot of rules and a lot of boundaries mm-hmm. and a lot of, you know, the purest. It's like you, you can't use effects. You know, you can't, there's like certain things you can do. You can't, you you can have vocals like this, but you can't have vocals like that. You know, it's sort of like, I don't know. I just said, you know, fuck it. Like if, if people want to say like, oh, they're not a thrash band anymore, then say we're not a thrash band anymore. But like, you know, I don't really care. Like I just wanted to write a really cool album and like a collection of songs. And, and I think we did that. So I don't know. I think that song's a thrash song, but I think that, you know, when you hear this album, it's kind of well-rounded. There's like a lot going on, so. Yeah, it reminds me of a conversation actually that I that I had. You remember when I when I talked with Vinny LaBella and he said the same thing. He's like, man, the fucking gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. He's like, they're just coming out. He's like, I feel like this has still got lots of thrash. It's got a lot of groove in there. But some of these guys are like saying exactly what you said. He's like, yeah, you know, the vocals sound a little too sing-songy on this part and they're not harsh enough on this part. And your guitar distortion isn't as heavy as it should be. And you're doing too much soloing in this part and this and that. And people just want, you know, half the people want like a really nice production. And the other half, the people want your shit to sound like it was made in 19 fucking 89 or something. Well, Uh, that's the thing. It's like, everybody's a fucking expert. It's like, well, then you come write the fucking album for me or better yet. Like you write a better one and put it out yourselves and we'll see how it does, you know? So it's like, I don't know. I get so tired of the fucking, you know, and and that's the thing with thrash metal. It's like thrash metal is my first love. Like it's, 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 you know, that's the genre that, you know, made me pick up a guitar fucking 30 years ago. You know, it's like, I love it. I love it to death. But some of the fans are such fucking punishers and they are so fucking set in their ways. And it's like, you know, nothing against them. If that's what you're into, like fucking cool. That's what you're into. Yeah. But like, you know, if, if you want a band that sounds like whatever, like go listen to that fucking band. Like, I'm sure you can, like, 
if you, if you need a band that sounds exactly like Metallica and Slayer, go listen to Evile. You know, there's a good example. Like, there's a band doing exactly that thing that you like. So just go listen to them. Like, don't tell me that, like, I have to do that, you know? Yeah. It's tough as an artist, you know? It's like, you get to a point, like, let's just say that you haven't quite established yourself in the, in the way that you want to establish yourself. You feel a lot more freedom to do whatever the hell you want. Then you start building up a fan base. Those fans, they come to like and expect a certain sound out of you. And at some point, they expect that that's going to be representative of pretty much what you do for the rest of your fucking life. And let's yep. just say 10 albums later, you're like, man, I really like that area of my career, but I would really like to explore some different things. And then those people shit on you. And you're like, man, do you expect me to just rehash the same shit over and over and over and over again and be happy with it? Do you want me just to phone this shit in or do you want you want us to try some new stuff and explore some new ground? And yeah, and not saying like they phoned it in. Don't, don't like I, I want to make that abundantly <laughs> clear. No, but like, you know, if you want a band that just does the same thing over and over and over again, over being the fucking key word here, just go listen to Overkill. Like, you know what you're going to get, you know, like they've they've they put out the same album. Every fucking two years, it's always good. It always sounds like overkill. It's great, you know, but like there are bands that they know what they do well and they do it, you know, and then there there are bands who I guess, whether they're, whether they're bored or they're experimenting or whether it's part of their, their musical journey or the mood they were in that day, whatever it is. But like, then you got bands that try new shit, like they go out on a limb and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, you know? And I think you see this a lot more in like younger bands, you know, like Bring Me the Horizon being a fantastic example of a band that has just been all over the fucking map. Right. You know, sometimes the the fans will either get through to them or like they'll revisit that time in their career and they'll just they'll run with it. Or you look at a band like AFI as a really good example who started off as kind of like a dirty skate punk sort of band, almost like a hardcore band to a degree. And then, you know, through the evolution of their career, like they had their big hits, like they had the Girls Not Gray era and like the, the Sorrow Song era and all that sort of stuff where they became like a big, almost like a, a radio emo band or some shit. And then now you go listen to them and they're doing like this new wavy sort of like Depeche mode sort of, you know, it's like, but they've reinvented themselves, you know, seven times and every time they've done it, like a lot of their core fans have gone with them, which is fucking awesome. You know, like that's what you want to see. And, you know, I feel like for every fan they lost along the way, they gained two. So, like, the ones that said, eh, we're not into this era, it's like, that's cool, but somebody else is, you know, so. Yeah, I think Opeth is a band that I think of when it, in regards to that, or, like, you know, My Dying Bride or Paradise Lost, where they've gone through these evolutions, and some some have stuck with them for decades, and I think that's fantastic. And you, at some point, you have to understand that, you know, artists, they're, they're artists, they're creative, they need they need to try need to try new things so it's yeah man i mean i'm not i'm not on that side of it anymore i don't really perform or do that but i i remember that it was a struggle that i had to you know what direction do i want to take things and you know i'm just going to write what i'm going to write and what feels good to me and if you like it hopefully you do and if not fucking you know no hard feelings i guess we we're just not meeting at that center ground right now i couldn't have said it better myself and if you want us to sound like eradication and we don't the good news is you can still go listen to Eradication. <laughs> it's it's still out there for you, you know? Absolutely. So, you know, it, like you said, no hard feelings. You know, I mean, right now, I mean, like, Gojira is a good example of a band that's like a constant evolution. And I feel like every time they've evolved, to me anyway, now I know you're going to have those fans that loved like that early, like Morbid Angel sound and shit they used to do. But to me, it's like every time Gojira has evolved and like released another album, it's always been better than the album before it. 
And if not better, it's been different enough that you don't have to necessarily make like a direct comparison, but, but it's been bigger than the album before. It's been more successful or, or better executed or better received or like better reviewed. It's like, I, I just feel like they constantly move forward and they do it on their own terms. And I fucking love that about that band. So, yeah. you know, if, there, if there's something to be learned, like, you know, Gojira is like a perfect case study of a band that, you know, sounds absolutely nothing like their early material, but like they're fucking awesome. So now the rest of the dudes in War Curse, I mean, you guys definitely have a, a very listenable cohesion that, that comes through on the album. But I, I assume that you all have somewhat different backgrounds. I mean, the first couple workers albums definitely had that Bay Area vibe to it. We definitely talked about that in the past, but this one seems to be veering away from that just a little bit. And so is that kind of the consensus of everybody in the band? Like we've just, we're listening to new bands now. There's so many new things. We just have different kinds of influences throughout the band. I think that's part of it. I mean, so, you know, I've told the story a lot, but for people who haven't heard it or don't know this, like Eradication was written and actually almost completely recorded at one point in time by our first vocalist. So like lyrically, I write most of the lyrics, like almost all of them, but like vocally that was written with Tarek's voice in mind. Right. You know, and, and, and Tarek and Blaine are just such wildly different vocalist, different singers. I mean, they couldn't be any, any further apart. So like, the last album, you didn't really get a lot of Blaine's influence. You didn't really get a lot of Blaine's personality or Blaine's ability, you know, because those songs were written for somebody else. Like he went in on literally a two day notice, like we threw him in the studio. And the first time he heard a lot of those songs, and this is a testament to Blaine's talent, but like the first time Blaine heard some of those songs was when he was standing there recording them. So like he went, some of those songs, like he'd have to play it back three or four times or like I'd have to sing a guide track and then he would just sing over top of it with with my shitty vocals, like in his headphones or whatever. You know, <laughs> so, you know, it's amazing that Eradication turned out as well as it did, given the circumstances under which it was made. But like with this album, it was a lot more collaborative. You know, Blaine is by far the best guitar player in our band. Dude's amazing. But his influences are a lot different than mine. You know, Blaine is, well, he's a little younger than I am for one, but like he got into metal at a totally different time. You know, like I grew up, in a household with metal, you know, like my parents were into it and their friends were into it. So like, you know, my early exposure to metal was, you know, everything from Black Sabbath forward, you know, where Blaine, like, I think he, honestly, I think he discovered metal during like the Killswitch Engage boom, you know, like Blaine was like a metalcore kid that then found thrash metal and like then found, you know, Metallica and whatever. So he kind of like worked backwards. Worked backwards, yeah. Yeah, so like, but, but the stuff that he listens to is like nowhere even remotely close to like the same stuff that, you know, like say, myself or like Murphy listens to James is into a lot of like death metal and a lot of different stuff. Johnny, our bass player, he's in a lot of black metal and a lot of weird like European shit. So yeah, I mean like we've all got definitely like a different interest and and we all try to bring what makes sense to the table. You know, it's like, we're not going to, I mean, I'll never say never, but like, we're probably not going to like veer off into like, you know, 220 BPM blast beat <laughs> world anytime soon. But like, you know, within reason, though, you know, we try to like take some of that that outside mojo, so to speak, from from everybody's kind of like preferences and, and somehow make it work or at least keep everybody happy enough that they don't quit. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. But at the end of the day, yeah, I mean, me and Blaine work very well together. And I think it, it was cool to have somebody who comes from like a different place to bounce ideas off of, you know, both guitar and and vocally. Yeah. Like like there there's times that 
he can show me things. There's times I can show him things. So it's kind of cool because like Murphy and myself have been in bands together for so long that I feel like we're basically the same person. You know, like our influences are the same. Like our backgrounds are the same. We've played in bands together so so damn long that like, you know, there's only so many tricks on the guitar, I guess. And like me and Murphy kind of share the same tricks, you know? So it's like, it's cool to have somebody with like a different bag of tricks, you know? Yeah. Well, and I mean, and you've also, I mean, you're, you're friends and your relationships with people in the industry that go back a, a very long way. Yeah, I'm sure people that you've worked with and people that you know, I mean, there's, there's no way that those influences aren't going to just sneak in there because you're just constantly exposed to them. And, you know, learning new tricks is great, but everybody has their comfort zone. It's when you kind of deviate from that comfort zone that the real fucking magic starts happening. Yeah. And I think that like my, you know, my default comfort zone, of course, you know, I mean, like the kind of the Bay Area thing. If you just handed me a guitar and said, play something, like that's what kind of comes out. Eradication basically is what's going to come out, you know, but if you didn't put me on the spot and you gave me like two days and you said, write me something, I'm going to come back and listen to it. I mean, hell, I could write you any song you want, you know, I mean, like my, my influences and the stuff that I listen to outside of thrash metal are just so vast. Like, I like a lot of pop punk bands, you yeah. know, like a, a lot of a lot of like modern pop punk stuff I listen to. I listen to a lot of the modern metal bands. You know, Architects is a big band that that I'm heavily into right now. And like, I mean, Wage War and some of like the younger dudes that are doing cool stuff. You know, I pay a lot of attention to that stuff. But, you know, I might get off here and like go listen to a Rainbow album or like, you know, Deep Purple is a big influence. Like I yeah. love Richie Blackmore, you know, so it's like. It's it's good to be able to pull things from different worlds when like you're when you're fishing for something or like when you hit that wall. It's like you can only like down pick a you know a a, a straight time riff you know so many different ways you know it's like you got to have something else I guess to look at you know yeah you can only chug and gallop so many times before you run out of patterns exactly, at least at least yeah. for me I don't know about the rest of you guys but you know I definitely don't have the right hand that I used to I guess I have to do more right hand work if you know what I mean well, but. Well, I guess- I guess the best I, I guess the best way to look at it is like technical abilities aside, like songs come first. Mm. That's that's the best way to look at it. And that's like before I consider myself a guitarist, because there's a million people who play guitar better than me. And before I consider myself a musician, because what the fuck does that mean anymore? Mm. Like I'm a a I'm a songwriter. I like songs. You know, I like songs with hooks. I like songs that I can remember. I like songs that take me to a certain place or make me feel a certain thing. And like the guitar to me is just kind of a means to an end. Like that's how I'm going to convey that emotion into whatever the fuck I'm doing that day. You know, the guitar is a tool. You know, I don't, I'm not one of these 10 hour a day fucking obsessive guitar player dudes that knows all the names of everything. I don't know shit about, you know, theory or any of this other stuff, but like I know how to write a song, you know, and that's like what I enjoy doing. Yeah. yeah well, uh, clearly you're getting that message across. If those two songs that, that I heard, again, have, have any, any bearing on what, what's to come. I, I think we're in for a, a sonic fucking ass fucking of a treat. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for some new stuff. I mean, I, I, I've been out of it for a bit, took a little bit of a break, had to decompress and, and think about some things and I'm coming back and things are just getting sent to me. And it's just such a, a cool feeling to, to see people, you know, such as yourself, but so many others that are renewed, things are happening and, and, you know, the energy is back, the vibe is back. And, and I, I do, I do believe it's back and, and it's, it's a feeling, feeling pretty fucking rad. So it sounds to me like you guys getting ready for some really cool shit to happen. So what are we, what's, what can we expect next? Are we going to see some more, 
some more playing out before the album comes out? Or are you guys going to take some time and just kind of work on promotional things? Right now, I'm starting to write the next one. And the only reason I'm doing this is I don't want to have another giant gap between releases. Yeah. And I know that like we're planning some tours for later this year. I want to at least get some of the the writing and some of the demoing out of the way before we get busy so that we don't have to like go through busy season, go through an album cycle and then hit the reset button and start working on this sort of stuff. Sure. So like while we're in shape and while I'm in that mode, like I'm just kind of focusing on getting the next batch of songs started. We're definitely working on some tours, working on some ideas. Next steps, I mean, I assume sometime this week I'll find out like what the release date is and, you know, we'll start planning singles, we'll start shooting videos. You know, we'll start doing all the fun shit that goes with releasing an album. So that's going to keep us busy for sure. Yeah. And no doubt, you know, Metal Blade will uh, be footing some of that bill for some some top, top-notch production stuff that, that I am sure we will all be excited to see and hear. Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> so mm, anticipation of a date coming here pretty soon down the road, being able to maybe release some singles, that's a definite possibility. I think that with what Warcurse it has kind of become known for, it seems to me that you guys are on track to become a staple in the industry. What are some of the other bands that, that you have been into that, that we should give some recognition to? I know that you're a huge proponent of like the underground thrash scene and as much as you love the ogs you are probably one of the first people i think of when it comes to giving some some props to some of the newer bands so who's out there right now that we should be checking out yeah i I mean i kind of pride myself in that and i appreciate that you've noticed that i think there's a there's a wealth of amazing young bands out there that get overlooked and it's kind of a shame there's a band we toured with in 2019 called tyrant i know that's kind of a there's you're going to find like four tyrants when you search for them, but they're the, they're the young ones. Tyrant put out an album this year that I thought, it, or last year, I guess, technically, I thought it was one of the best albums. It was like my top two albums. I had that and Architects as like the two best albums that came out last year. Definitely look that up. Yeah, I mean, there's so many good, good bands out there. Maybe not even thrash metal bands, but just as a whole, there's just a lot of good bands out there. Tyrant, though, is definitely one that stands out to me. Blood Letter is another really good one. They released an EP last year. I know they are currently in the studio working on an album right now. I'm sure they don't mind me saying that. But Bloodletter from Chicago, absolute sick thrash band. Lots of speed, lots of intensity, really cool guitar work, good vocals. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Bloodletter. Strike Masters actually got an album that's finishing up right now. And I've heard some stuff off of that and it kicks serious ass. So you can look forward to a new Strike Master album this year. Yeah, I don't know who else I should plug, man. I mean, I feel like I'm going to hurt some feelings. I got <laughs> yeah. to plug everybody. We could be sitting here for a long everybody time. Everybody you know. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and I do, that is one of the things that I do appreciate about you is that you are, you're very outspoken and very much a supporter of music as a whole, not just, you know, a genre driven. And you still you still do work in the industry and, and have lots of contacts. So hopefully that some of that exposure helps some of these bands get some airplay and, and get some some uh, some nice live shows in, in the works. And I'm hoping that we see because as we talked about previously as well, at some point, all of these OGs, they're going to die. Somebody needs to take the helm, right? What, what's going to happen? You know, when the big four isn't around anymore, do we get a new big four? Is there going to be just somebody that slides into their place who maybe wasn't quite the big four, but now they're the big four? Or do we get a new big four, big five, big six of all these emerging bands that nobody knows who they are yet? I don't know. I mean, it seems like the industry has sort of like, they sort of touch a band every so often. And it seems like right now, if I had to say like the next crop, because yeah, I mean, you look at the current landscape and 
you and I have talked about this infinite amount of times. And I think we talked about it last time we were on here, but like, hell, now all these dudes are 60. Like they're all having their 60th birthdays, you know? Yeah. How much longer do you expect guys in their 60s to be able to, thrash metal is a very physically demanding genre. Like right. to play an hour long thrash metal set. Like I went to the gym for months leading up to this last tour to get my, my cardio feeling good and like make sure I wasn't going to fall apart on stage. You know, and you expect these guys in their 60s to get up there and perform these wild sets. You know, Metallica plays two and a half hours or some shit. <laughs> but it's not going to last forever. But I feel like Lamb of God has been like anointed, like the next, they're the next one, you know, like they've, they've gotten the, the big direct support or co-headlining spot on like the last, I don't know, 10 big tours that have happened. So Lamb of God's in line. I would say Ghost definitely as of right now. I mean, I don't know, call metal, get mad at me, whatever. But uh, Ghost is certainly being groomed as like a next big headliner. They're up to like 10 million monthly Spotify listeners right now, which I find fucking insane. Yeah. Like I, I remember when Ghost had like 100,000 listeners and people were losing their minds. Like, so yeah, I mean, Ghost is a big one. Arch Enemy, if they can, if they can survive Alyssa's upcoming solo career, we'll see how that goes. Gojira for sure. You got to have them in that conversation. And, and definitely Architects, which, you know, that's sort of like a, Almost kind of a different genre, but there is like some overlap. It, it's certainly metal, but it's like a different. I feel like a lot of people who listen to all the bands I said before that, like they probably don't know one Architect song, but they better start paying attention because that band is like selling out huge, huge venues. Trivium's another one, like they'll be up there, you know. So the, there, there's some bands, there's some bands in the waiting in the wings, I guess, for the 60 year olds to go away. And <laughs> uh, yeah. I would I would love our name to be in that conversation at some point, but we've certainly got some work to do and a lot of miles to put in before that happens. Yeah. Well, you're just a bunch of young whippersnappers, right? But uh, yeah, I o think... <laughs> only, only in thrash metal can yeah. you be a bunch of 30 and 40-year-old men and be considered like a young band. <laughs> that tells you where this genre is at. Like, I've aged out of every other genre. I'm, yeah. way, too, I'm way too old to like start a pop-punk band and like go on Warp Tour or some shit. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I'm starting to see that that be the thing as well. You know, the 60-year-old emo guys, they're starting to pop up too. The world really needs like 15 more My Chemical Romance reunions. That's what we need. Yeah, what was that tour from a couple of years ago I was laughing about? I, I can't remember what it was, but there was some some ridiculous tour. It was just a bunch of emo. And I, don't get me wrong, I'm not slamming a genre, but I was just like, they named it something epic. And I was like, I don't even know who half these bands are. I love that they do that. And they do that, the, the big When We Were Young festival. That's what it was. Yeah, I love the name, man. I, I don't care. Like, that's fucking clever, man. That was some good marketing behind that. I, I didn't know who most of them were, but that's that's when I felt old. I was like, I was going to say, that tells you how fucking old we are, man. Yeah. Like, we were, we, we were old already when they were young, so, and now they're old, so I don't know. Get off my lawn. So, <laughs> get off my metal lawn. So, all right, well, I'm going to wind this down here with you, but in traditional fashion, I want to play one more game with you of who sucks more. This one's a little less involved than the last one, but I'm I'm sure you'll get a couple of these references because the, so one of these comes from a post from you, actually. So, okay. Who sucks more? Bands that complain about having to do meet and greets <laughs> or bands that charge astronomical fees for said meet and greets. And there's one particular person that I'm laughing about thinking about a post you did. Well, uh, you got to be talking about Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe, but but you, but you want to know what's funny? I feel like it's hard to differentiate the two because that's like the same thing. Like yeah. astronomical price complains about it. That's like the same. The same. It's like one of the same. I don't know. I guess the complainer because you know if the if the band charging a bunch for it but they're still enjoying it, 
that sucks a lot less than like the band that's charging a bunch for it and still fucking complaining about it. So I guess the answer is Doyle sucks more than everybody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's really funny because when I saw that come through, that was not the first time I'd saw that. So clearly he had made the rounds on the I'm a fucking douche circuit. It was, yeah. it was pretty funny. Well, yeah, he fucking cried about like, I have to do these meet and greets because my shitty fans are stealing my music. Shut the fuck up, man. <laughs> I don't know who the I don't know who the fuck's spending any fucking money whatsoever to go meet that fucking guy, but goddamn man. Yeah. Get, get over yourself. <laughs> All right. So let's see. Who sucks bands that charge for photo ops post pandemic, but still make fans wear masks and take long distance selfies to get the picture? <laughs> or bands that just simply won't engage fans <laughs> post pandemic. Oh, what was that? I'm sorry. Did you say testament? I had a I had a cough. I was choking on some Fresca. I don't know, man. <laughs> it's like, I'm just amazed. It's almost like nothing surprises me anymore. I don't know. I just, I sincerely do, do not understand bands that one, do this shit and fans that go along with it. So like, I don't know if you're going to pay for a fucking photo or a meet and greet with a band and everybody was calling it the, the meet and 50 feet because like, you, or the, or the, or the, or the 50, the 50 feet and greet was a good one that I heard. Yeah, you know, I don't know. If I'm paying you for a picture, one, I would never fucking do that. But if I'm paying you for a picture and you're like on the stage blurry and some assholes like using a cell phone, I don't know, man. What the fuck? Who's paying for this shit? It's the fan. It's the fan's fault that it even exists, man. And quit paying for the shit. Quit giving these bands your money. Yeah. Could you not just walk up in front of the stage and turn around and take the picture anyway and not pay fucking fifty dollars for that? Yeah. Yeah. But if you're but but if you're a, but if you're a, <laughs> We'll keep politics out of this, but like if you're a politician, it's fine. Like they'll take a picture with you. Right. So, absolutely. Kiss my baby, motherfucker. Absolutely. Kiss my ass is more <laughs> like it. Yeah. I'm not giving it. So I forgot. I, for, I forgot what the fucking question was, but fuck them all. How about that? <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Last one. Who or what sucks more? Chinese spy balloons or toxic train derailments? I'm going to say train derailments because I don't even know what the fuck that shit was in the sky, but I don't know. You can't trust China, so. <laughs> there but, you but, go. But, but that, yeah, that, that train, that train derailment's nuts, man. And what's crazy is that that happens a lot more than people think. You're right. I actually used to, years and years ago, I had like a short fling with some chick whose dad was a, he was a, a train, op, a, what do they call the guys that drive the train? A conductor? Or yeah, an a conductor. I don't know what the hell they call him. But either way, this dude, like he, he operated a train for a living and like he would come home and like, oh yeah, I hit another person today. And it was like casual as shit. But I guess it's it's underreported. No one talks about it. But I guess like it's very common for trains to derail. It happens all the time. And a lot of trains, almost all trains, I think the problem with the Ohio one was like they were over the limit of like what they were supposed to have on it. But they're almost every train has some kind of like toxic stuff on it. They're just they, they're supposed to limit it. But I guess this is a very common thing. So I think it's funny that now we're just like funny, not funny, but like, you know, that we're hearing about it now nonstop, like every day a train derails. But like, Guess what? These trains have always derailed. So yeah, and they're always carrying something questionable. That's yeah. for sure. Crazy, crazy shit, man. Crazy time to be alive. So, <laughs> right, such is the world. Crazy times to be alive. So, Justin, anything else that we need to plug for you today? Anything else you want to share with the world before I let you get back to writing your next metal opus? Ah, oh, man, I don't know. I think we've kind of covered it. So, Workhorse album number three coming in sometime soon. We'll have a release date soon. So, if you don't follow us on social media. Already, please go do so. We are on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. 
I don't know. I don't know if Murphy's on TikTok or not. We don't really do that shit. But yeah, or just go to warcurse.com, follow Metal Blade Records, follow Blacklight Media, and details coming soon. There you go, bitches. Justin Roth, War Curse. Thank you very much, brother. Always an honor talking to you. Always a blast. And we're going to have to do it again because I know we just have no shortage of awesome things to talk about. Absolutely, man. You're a great conversationalist and I always enjoy coming on. All right. Thanks. Cheers, man. Well, there you have it, Wastelanders. Some great news from a good friend and a killer band. I am excited to hear the final details on what to expect from the next War Curse. Hopefully, we won't have to wait too long for the official announcements because waiting too long irritates both my hemorrhoids and my kidney stones, among other things. So thanks again for joining me here. I really appreciate those of you who stuck it out and stuck it in. I promise there's some really cool shit this year. We're going to close this one out with a song that gives us a glimpse, just a little peek of the true musical diversity of War Curse, and who knows, maybe a taste of things to come. So here's their epic cover of Anthrax's only KFMP Misery Point Radio out 